Note, we're now creating most of our Into the Vertical Blank episodes as video first. So this means a lot of visuals and things to see instead of just being all audio. Go to YouTube and search for Into the Vertical Blank or visit us at intotheverticalblank.com to find a video version of this episode. the secret Atari heroes of GCC. When I was a preteen in the early 80s, I loved Atari. Seemed like every great video game that came to arcades had their name on it. There were games like Asteroids and Missile Command and Battlezone and Tempest, just to name a few. But there were others like Dig Dug, Pole Position, and Food Fight that I liked just as much, if not even more, that also carried the Atari name, but were not actually made by Atari. Atari was so big in the early 80s and the arcade industry was so hot that not only did Atari make their own arcade games, but they also licensed them from other companies to distribute around the world. I found out by reading various magazines at the time that both Pole Position and Dig Dug were actually made by Namco, and Food Fight and the whole Atari 7800 console were made by a company named GCC, and the name GCC stuck in my mind. Food Fight was a standout game in the arcades that featured fast action, cute characters, and a humorous premise. A couple years ago, I had the pleasure of interviewing the creator of that game, Jonathan Hurd. Food Fight has long been a favorite arcade game in the vertical blank. I've always wondered how it was made and why the new Atari never actually acknowledged its existence. Jonathan told an amazing story of working for GCC in the early 80s. His stories of how he came up with the idea for Food Fight how the game advanced in design felt like a masterclass in golden age arcade game creation. The way I came up with the idea, you know, given Kevin Curran's uh, direction to come up with an idea for a video game, build it, we'll all get rich. So, you know, I was a, a fairly avid video game player, but I also had a job during the day. So now I had plenty of, you know, time to really think about this and just focus on it. So I played a lot of games. Um, we had a few in the office, but I also went to arcades. And I was thinking, you know, I want something that isn't shooting at people. There were all there were tons of games that involved shooting, obviously. And and I thought, you know, that's not great in terms of attracting women to play. And also, you know, wouldn't it be great to have a game that just has more of a fun tone to it? <clears throat> so I thought, what else could a what else could the fire button be on a game? And I thought, throw, because I play baseball. And okay, what could we throw? And then food popped into my mind. And then I immediately thought, that is the perfect idea for a video game. Call it Food Fight. And 
that and then I thought I better do this game before anyone else realizes that there could be a, a game called Food Fight that would involve throwing food. I was mesmerized by Hurd's easygoing nature and his intelligence. It made me want to interview more and more people from GCC. Soon after, I landed an interview with GCC hardware engineer and unofficial spokesman Steve Golson. In 2016, Golson gave a talk to the Game Developers Conference about the making of Ms. Pac-Man. I'd actually read through his presentation from the time and was fascinated by the story. In our interview, Steve gave some early insight into how GCC hardware is designed, and we talked about some of the intricacies of how Midway, Namco, and GCC combined to create Ms. Pac-Man. Midway had to get permission from Namco, and Namco actually signed off on the, the character design for the female Pac-Man. You, you see a lot of people talking about how Namco did not know about it. That is not true. Namco absolutely knew about it. Uh, Nakamura-san knew about the character and signed off on it. So uh, Midway says to to uh, Namco, because basically from Midway's point of view, this was designed as a kit, right? We designed, I designed it, I was the hardware guy, designed it as a kit that would plug onto an existing Pac-Man cabinet. So that's how they built it. It's basically a Pac-Man circuit board with this little second board attached and plugged into it. Amazing. The story of GCC felt deep and interesting. What I wanted to know, though, was the story of the Atari 7800, the great lost game console that was slated for release in 1984. GCC designed the console and many of the original games, and Steve Golson had a lot to say about the Atari 7800. Of early 83, we'd start to, okay, what, what can we do? Oh, well, we'll take TIA and we'll, like, add more players and missiles. And then, oh, you know, oh, well, gee. And so that's got, got us thinking about what would we do. And then fairly quickly, it was, okay, we're not going to modify TIA. We'll just stick a TIA on board, and that gets your compatibility. Because 2600 compatibility was one of the big things, right? right. This is going to be, this is, what can we do to replace 2600? What can we do to enhance 2600 for now? So it's like, oh, well, we'll get compatibility by just, we'll just put a TIA on the board and then we'll do our own graphics, whatever we want. And that gets our compatibility. Great, what can we do? And that led us very quickly to Maria and the, the Maria architecture and how that is gonna work. And so boom, off we go doing Maria. Originally, we called it 3600 was our code name for it. And so all the development time, it was, this is the 3600. It's a 2600 goosed a little bit. We also talked a bit about how GCC credits are so hard to find and how one day maybe that will be rectified. So finding the credits for stuff that GCC worked on is very difficult to find out who worked on them. And I, at least there's yes. very hard, right? You'll see like yes. done at GCC, like nobody knows, Do you know? I could I could dig it out. We had a, a, a company newsletter that we put out every week or so. Oh, that's amazing. And it, it would have a, uh, and I have almost a complete set of that newsletter. Uh, it, was, it was called Erte, and it's on my list of things to do is <laughs> to scan it, you know, and have the PDFs, and because uh, it would be, I, I'm sure you, you, you fans would have an amazing time with it. But one of the most interesting things Steve said was how GCC considered themselves a secret weapon for Atari. We tried to keep a very low profile. We did not want people to know about us. Once we started doing work for Atari, we just figured, hey, we do not need to 
People do not need to know about us. As long as we get paid, that's all we care about. And we'll just uh, be our little quiet secret selves. It's cool. And stuck in Cambridge. Steve also mentioned some tantalizing details about the Atari 2600 and hinted at a second interview to come. The first work we did on VCS, and, and that's, that's a fun story for another day, Steve, yeah. is how did we get started doing VCS cards? Because we were doing coin-op, right? That was our thing, right from the start, we're doing coin-op. So how did we get started doing VCS? But we did in early, mid 82. But then COVID happened. And for almost four years, we could never connect. That meant no VCS discussion and no GCC newsletters. Recently, I've been working on some Atari 7800 tutorials and got interested in all the amazing title screens in some of the games. I went back and played some of the Atari VCS games from 1982 and 1983 and noticed they also had some great title screens. Then it occurred to me that many of those title screens were probably designed by GCC. So I emailed Steve Golson about title screens and he pointed me towards Michael Feinstein, a GCC programmer who worked on VCS games. When I went looking to see what games Michael Feinstein made, I found it incredibly difficult to get a full list. There just did not seem to be any one place that had the correct credits for the games that were made by GCC. Some of it has leaked over the years are spread out to sites like Atari Age, Atari Protos, Atari Mania, and Moby Games, but no place seemed to have the comprehensive credits for these games recorded. This is Atari Inc.'s fault, of course. By never giving their original programmers credit, and then secretly outsourcing a good portion of their games work to GCC in the early 80s, they, in effect, made it nearly impossible to know the names of the people that worked in these games. And why did I care? Well, I'd say that everyone deserves credit. So much so, in fact, that I believe it's credit is one of the reasons why Atari didn't survive the golden age in the first place. But also, these people are boyhood heroes of mine, and I like to know their names. This situation with the credits became embarrassing when I talked to Michael Feinstein. Moby Games had said he worked on Battlezone and Jungle Hunt. I told Michael I knew this, but he came back and told me he'd worked on several more games, including Phoenix, Joust, and the Atari 7800 game Desert Falcon. I was embarrassed that I could not approach him knowing all of his game credits. Despite this lack of information, the interview with Michael went really well. We First, we talked about the games he worked on, like his first game, Phoenix. I graduated on a Friday, and on Monday, I was at work there. So How fun. I mean, it's uh, very interesting. Yeah. Cool. But it was a blast. And, you know, like I said, great environment. It was a lot of fun. You know, we were working really hard and we cranked these games out. And, um, you know, but it, the thing you have to realize about these games is because of the hardware constraints, you know, what we would did is we would kind of write something that wouldn't fit into a cartridge, basically too, too big, too many capabilities. And then we had to like trim it down to something that would just barely fit, <laughs> yeah. right? Because the cartridges, like they were generally eight, eight K of ROM, very tiny. And, um, you know, I remember the first Phoenix, like that when we just like wrote everything we, we wanted to do and it worked was probably twice that size. Oh, and we wow. cut out part, parts of the game and, you know, optimize, optimize, optimize. And we eventually got it to fit into eight K just, just, just. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's all part of the process too. So it's not just like write it and start to finish. It's not like writing a paper, right? Like right from the beginning to the end, they're like, you're always trying to figure out what can we do? What can we do? How do we make it better? And we, you know, we were playing each other's games throughout. So we had a big lab and still, you know, big open space. We've all got our games going. And as we're making progress on the games, we're all walking around and, you know, kind of playing each other's games and talking and looking at it and, 
suggesting. So it was just such a great creative environment to try to get the best out of it. And um, yeah, I mean, we got the game done on time and there were commercials on TV by uh, Christmas time. It was very exciting. While doing this, I rediscovered one of his games, Desert Falcon, which sent me on a kind of vision quest into the depths of that title. Mike and I also talked about the fact that credits are hard to find and not really collected anywhere. And this made me even more interested. Has anyone ever collected the credits for GCC games? On Twitter, I asked if anyone was interested and I got a message almost instantly. Soundtrack specialist said, if Michael Feinstein has any idea who with GCC program pole position for the A8 5200, that would be a true find. See, it was not just me. It seemed like the credits for many GCC games were a mystery. Michael returned later that week with an email saying he could get me an interview with one of GCC's founders, Doug McRae. I jumped at the chance. Before the interview, Doug sent me a list of credits that he had recently gathered. Then he sent me a staff photo of GCC with many of the people named. This was amazing. I felt like I was on the cusp of solving the riddle of GCC. And then we did our interview. Here is that interview. So tell me, okay, so I'm, I'm a huge, obviously a huge GCC fan. You know that already. That might be weird for you to hear that someone's a GCC fan, or is it weird? Do you know that people enjoy all the things you did? Um, I do know it. Uh, I often talk with uh, people that know of the work, uh, but very rarely do people understand uh, who GCC was and uh, who all was involved in the development of all the games. That's one of my goals here is to is to unearth your your credit right about who did what because i think i think i i i think people should get credit for what they did especially when um they're pioneering things right that nobody knows about but not nobody but you know what i mean not as many people as you believe should should know about them so let's talk about that a bit how did gcc get started and how did you then get working with atari the very abbreviated uh, beginning uh, was I somewhat inherited a pinball machine from my brother when he graduated college, and I set it up at an MIT dorm, and the pinball machine started pulling in lots of quarters, and this sounded fun, so I bought another one, and um, after those two, brought on a partner, Kevin Curran, uh, and so then- wait a minute, wait a minute, you're the you're the you're the you're the guy who started the whole thing then. Well, if you look at it that way, my brother probably was. But uh, okay, listen, we'll give your brother credit. And Doug, who was driving back and forth to New Jersey anyway, even as a freshman, because he had a car, which was really cool, and he had a girlfriend, which was really cool. Which is cool. So he was always commuting back and forth. He's like, "I'll bring my this pinball game." So he brings this pioneer game and sets it up in the common room, and everyone was like, "Wow, this is really cool." And so Doug is, huh? I guess I'm making money at having this <laughs> pinball game. It's like, gee, this is kind of interesting. And so he and Kevin started talking about this and said, gee, we should, why don't we partner up and we'll do this, we'll buy a new game and we'll, we'll like expand this business. And so the two of them, Doug and Kevin, started this this little partnership and they they pooled their money. They, they said, we'll split this 50-50. And their, the, the first game they bought was, um, I believe, Playboy, right. um, which I think is Bally, Bally Playboy, I believe. We had two pinball machines. Uh, they were both doing well. And we bought uh, our first video game, uh, a couple more pinball machines. 
And before you know it, we were operating about 20 video games and pinball machines on the MIT campus. Uh, we were running around uh, collecting quarters out of them and uh, paying our tuition. So and a little bit like, if you know the history of Atari, how Atari started with the, with the arcade route. So you're, you got the same roots here about 10 years later. Yes. And so uh, we were uh, very much enjoying the business, but it was laborious that we were uh, often going around to the different dorms at 12, 1 o'clock in the morning, uh, emptying out the quarters, fixing them. Um, and we started scratching our head and say, are we on the right side of this business? And what we really thought would be fun would uh, would be to design the games. Yeah. And uh, we did not know how to design a game, um, you know, particularly that an arcade game is a gigantic cabinet. And we had no idea how that would get manufactured, uh, but we knew how to code. And so uh, we looked at what was going on in our 20 machines uh, three of which were missile commands. And um, yeah. they were uh, very, very hot on the MIT campus. Uh, we're, we were all into ICBMs and blowing <laughs> up uh, cities and that kind of stuff, uh, kind of playing war games. And the first week we put in uh, our first missile command, it pulled in, I think, like $600 in quarters. Uh, and the game only cost $2,500 or only. Uh, and we thought we were going to make it back in about four weeks. Um, as you can probably guess, uh, that people started playing it less and playing it longer. They got bored and they got good. And so we uh, started talking and saying, it would be really neat to be able to add features to it uh, to make it more interesting and to make it harder. Um, and we started looking around and the only thing that was really available at the time were speed up kits. And uh, they would either by changing the code a little bit or changing the crystal would make uh, the game play faster. And we did not think this was really fair to uh, consumers uh, that you're just making it harder by uh, speeding everything up uh, and sometimes to a very unnatural uh, speed. It didn't really feel like the same game anymore. So by so, crystal, you mean speeding up the time clock on the motherboard? Is that? that that's correct. Okay. Uh, so people would swap out the crystal and hope that the processor could keep up. Um, <laughs> Um, so we, we looked at that and finally we said, no, what we really need to do is write um, some changes to the game. In effect, create a sequel to Missile Command and uh, add that to the cabinets we have. And we had three cabinets um, and knew there was tens of thousands of them out there. So we started disassembling the Missile Command code, uh, figured out pretty much exactly how the game worked, uh, how all the code uh, interacted. And uh, we uh, started designing uh, the sequel or uh, how to make changes to the game to add in new features. Uh, we did this uh, during spring break our senior year, rather than going down to uh, Fort Lauderdale or wherever anybody else would be going. Uh, we stayed, bought a uh, in-circuit emulator, which uh, was $25,000, wow. other equipment for another $25,000, and pretty much had invested $50,000 during spring break into creating this uh, add-on, or whatever we wanted to call it, to Missile Command. And pretty much we worked around the clock because we had one uh, keyboard you could type on and try the code. And so we played tag team, uh, <laughs> uh, all of us. Eight-hour shifts. Chance to make uh, 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 changes to the code and look at it. 
But at the same time, uh, we were also trying to look at the intellectual property issue of how do you uh, change a game without getting involved in copyright infringement. Uh, some people had uh, gone into the ROMs of some games, uh, found some constants, uh, changed them, and it made it run faster or you know, accidentally caused something to happen differently. Um, and then they would just make duplicates of those ROMs. And that obviously was uh, copyright infringement to us because you were taking code and modifying it, but then selling the original code along with the modifications. Right. And our understanding of copyright law, which was very, very young at the time, particularly in terms of video games, was that was wrong. Um, we wanted to do it a different way. So we uh, built out hardware that would connect into where the uh, ROMs went. And then you put the ROMs on our board and we had our own ROMs with our own instructions and a circuit that would overlay our instructions over the original missile command instructions when it got to certain points. So we could uh, have a couple of routines that would uh, draw the satellite coming across the screen and occasionally launch that rather than the uh, plane coming across and things like that. We, we very much understood how the game worked uh, so that we could then add things to it um, and make it more challenging, more exciting. Um, and so we created that, uh, put our ROMs on the board. We would not copy the Atari code. We would have you take the ROMs you already bought when you bought the missile command, put them on our board, and we would watch the address lines and at certain times overlay our code on top of the Atari code as our way of not worrying about copying the Atari uh, object code. What did Atari think? Um, Atari was looking at it and saying, um, uh, and we, we hear a lot of this later on down the line, um, cop copyright uh, or the, the protection of their industry was uh, paramount to them, that they were very concerned uh, that these enhancement kits, as we were calling it, uh, could create uh, longer life out of the games, and planned obsolescence uh, was a big part of what they're doing. Ah, uh, they that makes a lot enjoy of sense. Selling brand new cabinets and uh, mm -hmm. getting new revenue. Uh, when we extended out lives of uh, games, we were hurting new revenue to Atari. So the relationship between the game maker and the and the 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 arcade owner being that the arcade owner really wants to extend the life the manufacturer not really in their best interest and you're sitting in the middle basically helping the arcade owner extend the life of games they already own so they don't have to spend what do they spend on your your uh, your kit so as uh, a missile command from atari costs uh, roughly $2,800 or $3,000 at the time, maybe $2,500. Uh, our kit sold for $299 or $295 uh, out of the back of magazines. And did you sell any of those? We did. Uh, we uh, made them for about $20 a piece, uh, sold over 1000 And so uh, spring break, our senior year, or spring uh, semester as it turned into, uh, we uh, sold... Uh, about $300,000 worth of uh, boards and ran about a quarter million dollar profit. Wow. See, this is Doug McRae, Kevin Kern, and Steve Golson. And anybody else at the time? Yeah, uh, a couple of others. Um, 
uh, Larry Dennison and Chris Rode. And uh, and so all five of you guys, five. how many of you guys continued on with your MIT education at the time? Let's see. Larry finished up uh, and uh, that was about it. <laughs> oh, it was, a, it was a lot of fun. It was way more fun than going to class. So we ended up, you know, so, so myself, I was supposed to graduate in June of 81. Doug was supposed to graduate, I think, although he was in a five-year dual degree program at that point. So maybe he, uh, Kevin, I think, was supposed to graduate. And we ended up like, yeah, sorry, we're just not going to. Right? <laughs> not, not yeah, this is so much fun. Stop going to class and and uh, just just play with these games this is just just an incredible amount of fun <laughs> so you saw you got you saw the 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 light and moved on so did, so what happened so you uh what t- tell me the rest of the story we uh started shipping the units and we we had finished engineering of it and said well this is great money is pouring in and the concept of making these enhancement kits uh works really well in the marketplace uh, so we started the, the second enhancement kit. We had looked and said, what's the hottest game out there that has kind of the same problem as Missile Command uh, does of the fact that players get very, very good and can play forever and get very, uh, uh, get very, very good by being bored. Uh, they, they would <laughs> learn patterns and whatever. Right. And the game we targeted was Pac-Man. Uh, it was a, a game where people had memorized the patterns uh, so they could play for hours, uh, and they were bored of it. Once they figured out the pattern, uh, they could just play for hours, but no one really wanted to, or you know, besides a few people that wanted to put up high scores and whatever. Right. Uh, so while Pac-Man was an amazingly successful game, uh, its revenue fell off, fell off very quickly also uh, for the arcade owners. So we started uh, looking at the enhancement kit to Pac-Man, and planned on marketing it the same way out of the back of magazines, uh, the trade magazines, and um, uh, we're developing that in the summer uh, of 1981 um, when we got notice from Atari, uh, or not from Atari, but uh, about Atari, that they were getting ready to sue us over uh, intellectual property issues. Uh, Turned around, uh, we sued them first, uh, so we could get the venue in Boston. Um, and then we fought uh, a couple of skirmishes in uh, federal district court here in Boston on the issues of intellectual properties. Uh, brand new to uh, the judges, brand new to uh, lawyers and everything else, uh, because it really had not been defined what is protectable and how you protect it uh, in the um, uh, intellectual property space. Uh, what we, what was claimed uh, or what was thought initially by Atari is we had copied their code. Right. And so we were smiling, going, no, we did not copy their code. <laughs> we, we did this correct. Uh, but then there are charges of um, uh, dilution of trademark and misrepresentation of origin of pretty much saying that a consumer out there doesn't know that this is not a pure Atari product um, and uh, that we were representing ourselves somewhat as Atari's sequel. Um, And it was unclear who was going to win in the end. Atari came to us and um, uh, said, you know, what do you guys really want out of this? You know, and 
it, it, we did not answer. We just wanted to sell another quarter million dollars of profit or whatever. We thought we were on something big. We said, we want to do video games. We really love this. Right. And so uh, the, we started negotiations with Atari and uh, they pretty much um, gave us a package to go away. Um, they offered us a development agreement where they would fund our company at $50,000 a month for 24 months. Um, and that's pretty good. You can do the math, uh, <laughs> for a couple of kids at MIT, uh, uh you know, it, it was great. And you've done the math yet? 1.2 million. Yes. Um, and it About. was being done. It was being done uh, on the assumption, as we found out later, getting to know uh, Atari's attorneys, uh, it was being done primarily to just say, they'll go away. Uh, they'll take that $1.2 million and go back to school and get their degrees, or they'll go sit on the beach. We don't care. Uh, they just wanted a stipulation that we would not do any more enhancement kits. And uh, we pretty much agreed to that with a couple of caveats. Uh, caveat one was we would not do any enhancement kits without the manufacturer's approval that owned the original game. And Atari looked at that and go, that was pretty simple because why would any manufacturer ever approve of an enhancement kit? The second one was that we had grandiose plans that you know someday we may go public or what might happen you know, with our tiny little company uh, or we'd be trying to get venture money or something. So we asked that Atari would drop the case against us with prejudice, uh, meaning they should not have sued us in the first place. They had, um, and they were backing off on it. So both of those happened. Um, and shortly after that happened, uh, Kevin Curran flew out to uh, uh, Chicago and met with the president of Valley Midway and said, I want to show you our enhancement kit. Uh, we just beat Atari uh, in uh, Boston federal court, and we would like not to have to sue you for declaratory judgment, figure out whether we can go this way. Uh, we would just like to get your agreement up front. We thought we were being clever, bluffing our way through. Uh, what was happening uh, right about the same time was the production of Pac-Man was ending, um, and they did not have anything to follow it up. There was no sequel done by Namco. There was no sequel done by Midway or uh, by Bally. Uh, and their, their attempts at sequels would not come for another uh, couple of years. Right. So we walked in and showed them what suddenly became the sequel to Pac-Man. So, so the kit for Pac-Man, um, at, at some point, it got the name Crazy Auto. And none of us have been able to remember why that came about. Um, but it was called Crazy Auto. We had a, uh, one of our friends from MIT, um, his older sister um, named uh, Patty Goodson was a musician. She was a professional musician living in New York City. And so, uh, you know, artistic, creative type. And we um, asked her to help us out with some of the design, the, the uh, artwork and character design and whatnot. And I think that's where the name Crazy Auto came from, was okay. from Patty. But she does not remember. So <laughs> truly, we do not, we do not know. But anyway, the name Crazy Auto came up. And so it was a kit for Pac-Man. And 
some of what we learned from the Atari lawsuit, which was, okay, do not reuse any of the characters from the initial game. So change them a little bit. So we took Pac-Man and basically made it look like the Pac-Man character from the side of the Pac-Man cabinet. Uh You ever look at the side of a Pac-Man cabinet, it's got this character Pac-Man with legs and blue eyes and sort of this animated thing. He's running. Yeah, he's running. And so that was Crazy Otto. And it had this 3D sort of look where Otto would... And uh, while it was called Crazy Otto at the time, and uh, the character had legs and was quite different, uh, it quickly became Ms. Pac-Man with a whole bunch of steps in between. But um, uh, Do you remember um, whose concept Ms. Pac-Man was? Um, the, the fact of it being a sequel, uh, came out of the first meeting, uh, between Kevin and the president of, uh, uh, Midway. Uh, but the name kept changing. It started off as Pac-Woman and Super Pac-Man and then, uh, uh, Miss Pac-Man, M-I-S-S. Right. Until someone pointed out that in the third intermission, out comes, uh, Junior Pac-Man. So they married. <laughs> Uh, so it became Mrs. And then uh, one of the wives of our programmers uh, said, we can't do Mrs. anymore. It should be Ms. So I went to Ms. and eventually shipped that way. Uh, but many iterations, one with Pac-Man, uh, uh, Ms. Pac-Man character having red hair, long red hair, and all kinds of things, but ended up with a uh, beauty mark, a bow, and some lipstick. Okay, so that was successful, right? I mean, you were... You were you were doubly successful with um, with with Miss Pac-Man. I mean, more than doubly, right? With with how much with how lucrative that was for you guys. Oh, this, this it was very lucrative and continued to be for thirty years um, about various uh, incarnations of Miss Pac-Man going out on cell phones and computer games and all so, kinds of. And does do you guys still own that, or does someone else own Miss Pac-Man now? Um, we could spend a couple hours talking about that. We do not own it. <laughs> I, I say that I know that when we talked to Jonathan Hurd a couple of years ago, when we were doing an episode about Food Fight, because Food Fight for my brother and I, that was our favorite arcade game, right? And and we thought that was amazing and didn't understand why, didn't know anything about it, but didn't understand why people didn't like it more. So mostly because it came out so late. But he told us that he was, he said he was there when Miss Pac-Man was being designed. Day on the job, I also noticed that my new colleagues were getting, putting the finishing touches on Ms. Pac-Man, the arcade game. And I said, hey, can I help you guys? They were under the gun. And um, Mike Horowitz, who was one of the developers of Ms. Pac-Man, said, yeah, her lips are looking a little funny. Could you uh, see if you can fix them up? And so I spent a a few minutes uh, working on the pixels around her, red and yellow pixels around her lip. And then uh, they sent out the ROMs to Bally Midway. So um, I always say, I'll put the finishing touches on Ms. Pac-Man's lips. Yeah, well, so Jonathan... uh uh, came on very early. Uh, what had happened is we were finishing up Ms. Pac-Man, um, what well, was Crazy Otto at the time, and trying to figure out what's next. And as we're going in parallel, the uh, Atari contract got signed, and we now had this development agreement to develop games for Atari. Atari never really meant for us to develop games. Right. But we started hiring engineers out of MIT and Harvard and uh, Cornell and a few other schools 
uh, and building up a team to develop video games. So Jonathan in Food Fight was doing, uh, I think, our first uh, arcade game from scratch. Um, And so he started on that with a couple of other games being developed uh, for the arcade. And we got a, uh, we were talking with Atari Marketing and they said, we are uh, shorthanded on getting cartridges out there for the home system. Um, they uh, meaning developers are leaving Atari, or so they did not have enough personnel. I, I, I think it was a whole combination of things. Uh, they had lost uh, people to Activision and iMagic. Um, they were still expanding their business. Uh, titles uh, that they wanted converted were coming in very, very fast. Um, and trying to move fast enough for the market, uh, they uh, mentioned to us that uh, you know maybe we could try doing uh, a couple of 2600 cartridges. Um, the first one they handed to us uh, was Rubik's Cube, where they were in the process of licensing uh, Rubik's Cube. The licensing deal fell through as we were trying to program uh, Rubik's Cube. Uh, and then Atari said, well, then let's just do it the Atari video cube uh, and it released uh as the first game we worked on and shortly after atari signed the license and so it got redone as rubik's cube um uh as uh, a second game under a different serial number but uh you know pretty much the same code oh so that's your first game that was the first release thing you guys when when was this do you know in 82 sometime in 82 this would be 82, yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, I always okay. thought Vanguard was your first game release, but that's not, I guess, not true. Uh, Vanguard may have beaten it out. I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, the first one we started working on was Rubik's Cube. Um, we, it, it took a little longer to try to figure out gameplay and whatever. Uh, Vanguard uh, got started by Dave Payne, and uh, uh, he was doing a direct conversion, which is what most of our games were that we did. Um, we're just trying to figure out the uh, best possible way to reproduce the game on the 2600, which of course is, is a very limited system. And your role at this time, Doug, you you did you could you code Miss Pac-Man the arcade game? I did some of it. Yes. Okay. Uh, so so, but now your role has changed a bit when when this in when when you get the Atari job. I know, and when you get the Atari work, is it? I know you became the manager of the developers at some point. Is that true? Yeah, so so uh, I, I think you're envisioning this uh, glorious uh, <laughs> board chart or something. And I see if one saying. ever existed, uh, we don't have it. <laughs> and okay, I understood. Think. So Kevin and I have been partners uh, now for uh, a couple of years in business, and we learned quite well how to separate out what uh, one person liked to do and what the other person liked to do. Uh, Kevin enjoyed a lot of the business stuff and uh, hiring and uh, other things around that. And I enjoyed uh, both the uh, engineering and doing some myself, but also working with the engineers um, to help figure out how we're going to do all these games and whatever. Uh, So technically, I was VP of engineering and he was CEO or whatever. Uh, I might have been CTO, uh, uh, but I, I don't think we even took a uh, breath long enough to do an org chart or whatever. Early <laughs> on. But you uh, kind of, <clears throat> you led the technical side and he led the business side. Correct. And, Wozniak uh, and jobs, but probably doesn't really compute the same 
because you guys are pr- different personalities than that. Correct, but um, not a not a bad analogy. Um, Bushnell Alcorn, something, maybe. something, <laughs> <clears throat> or okay. So I we we I don't never I've never done this before. Um, you sent us a list of credits. Do you mind if I share that right now and we we talk about it a little bit? Go right ahead. Okay, let me see if I can get this shared up. I have to caution that that list is probably only 98% accurate. Uh, I've been trying to work on uh, getting it uh, complete and going back to many people and checking out their memory. Um, But it is 98% correct, and there's probably an error or two. Well, let's not, we won't publish it now, but we'll, we'll, we'll go through it. And, and when we, and when you have something that you think is, is, is more complete, we'll find a place, a good home for it. Okay. Sure. Um, okay. So I see here, uh, the first one on the list here is Atari video cube. Um, that one we, we talked about. Um, I know that if we go down a little bit on this list, that Vanguard came out very soon and so did Phoenix, Phoenix as well. So that Mike, uh, Mike Feinstein said that you worked on those. Do you remember the the first set of games that Atari asked you to do? Or, or how did you, did they assign you games or did you just take a look at the list of licenses and start working on them? Well, that was an area that uh, quickly became, I think, unfair to the uh, California engineers at Atari. Um, that we were yeah, assigned the first couple, Vanguard, uh, Phoenix, um, Rubik's Cube. Uh, and then we started realizing that um, Atari was licensing most of the very good arcade games. And the license took a while to get done uh, from when a game first got out there. And hence, the programmers always got started late. Uh, and I'm sure you've heard lots of stories, uh, particularly E.T. and others, that the license came in so late. Uh, but, of course, marketing and sales wanted it in time for Christmas or whatever. And so there was a very small, unfair window uh, for developers to get it done. Uh, we, on the other hand, decided to get ahead of the curve uh, since we were not Atari employees or whatever and looked at it and said, well, if we can identify the hottest games in advance of the licensing getting done, we can get a head start on it. Some might not ever get licensed, but we might as well give it a try. And so uh, games like Pole Position, um, I went over uh, to Japan with uh, a uh, another engineer and a large uh, uh, video camera that... Uh, we would take turns putting on our shoulder and filming the other person playing the game. Pole position was not even in the States yet, but we had heard about it being a hot game uh, that Atari might license or might actually build. Uh, so we went over, played it, uh, came back with hours of footage and got started on programming the game. Wow. Wow. Then by the time Atari licensed the game, both for arcade and uh for the home, uh, we unveiled that we were two-thirds away done. Uh, and so we got the assignment to do pole position, which was a hot game, and uh, we were already quite a bit down the line. So we is, were is this – okay, choice. so you, you are credited on tons of these things, um, which is amazing. 
Um, and is pole position the first one you worked on? Uh, no, I, I worked on Rubik's Cube first. Okay, Rubik's Cube was your first one. I, I think it was eight or ten of us all being able to just attack whatever we got, try figuring out uh, how to do programming for them. Uh, so we were all just comparing notes and uh, trying to figure out uh, pointers to how to push the 2600 to produce even better graphics and gameplay. And yeah. well, so um, we, we were often sharing uh, our code from game to game, uh, getting together. Uh, we, we were all in one gigantic bullpen type room uh, with everybody having their own in-circuit emulator um, to help, you know, kind of speed up the whole thing. And uh, so uh, as, as we would develop, we were discussing, uh, you know, different techniques to how to get more graphics up there. And uh, a lot of the, uh, what was called the game kernel, the portion that uh, uh, drew the screen, um, a lot of that was shared from game to game as we got really, really good at uh, what later became known as racing the beam and right. uh, counting cycles and everything that had to be done. And uh, so we were throwing uh, you know, large amounts of MIT and Harvard engineers at uh, attacking uh, 2K and 4K games. So I got a question for you about the finances. So you're getting paid $54,000 a month for 24 months. But when you make games for Atari, or you take these assignments, are you getting more money for those? Yeah. So we, we, we were getting $50,000 a month to fund uh, the company um, with no real obligation to turn in a game. But if we were to turn in a game, uh, we would uh, we would have rights of first refusal to Atari for them to take the game and market it. Um, we Atari never uh, turned down the right of first refusal, so everything went to them. But there was a royalty structure that went with the uh, each of the games. So uh, every time something published, we were making money off of it. I have to say, it sounds like a pretty sweet deal. In your life, have you ever, ever got a better deal than that? Uh, yes, but it would go back to Ms. Pac-Man when we uh, uh, sold pieces of it over and over again over the years. <laughs> That's uh, good. Still a good deal. Okay, yeah. so a couple things on this list are interesting. Um, choplifter. Did you guys start work for the 2600? Did you start working on a choplifter on your own? Do you remember? I don't remember what happened there. Um, and as you see, it, it, it did not ship. Yeah. Um, okay, let's go. So so I'm looking at this list of VCS games, and this is like a murderer's row of like the best games on the VCS. Not all of them, right? But, but not all the best games, but certainly, you know, after there was the Pac-Man debacle, and actually, there was more than just Pac-Man. Like Defender came out on the VCS, and it was it wasn't that great either. There was a whole string of sort of subpar games right at the time that like the ColecoVision was coming out, and 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 game and systems that had way better graphics. So to me, when I was a kid, I'm like, oh my, Atari's like failing. Like I need to figure out what to do now because I love video games, but I this is I this is I'm 12 years old. I can't be seen with the Atari, right? <laughs> then. Miss Pac well, Vanguard first, then Miss Pac Man's up. We did the whole version for the twenty six hundred and it was, you know, just like so much better than Pac-Man. It looked, I mean, really as close as you could to Ms. Pac-Man, it played well. And I think that was one of the real keys because you could never make these games look as good as the arcade games if you didn't have the hardware capability. 
Well, we wanted it to play as, you know, so it felt reminiscent of playing that arcade game in terms of the gameplay and the feel of the game. And we spent a lot of time on that aspect of these games. So it's not just how it looks, which is of course important, but how it plays. Like we wanted it to be as fun as the arcade game. Miss Pac-Man blew me away and everyone else I knew because it's so vastly superior to Pac-Man. Now we know there are reasons why, right? There's reasons why Todd Fry had to do what he did and the reason, why, but but do you was there an inflection point with any of these games like Miss Pac-Man where, where you realized how much better the stuff you were doing could be? Was there a reason for that? Were you allowed more memory, you know, more time? Um, I guess what I'm, I'm searching for is like, what what made Miss Pac-Man or another game at the time so much better that it sort of revitalized the VCS for a short time, in my eyes, or the eyes of consumers? Because these games were so much better than what we'd seen before. Well, Miss Pac-Man is probably a great example, um, and it had reasons other than all the other games um you you asked about how we got paid we got paid a royalty for developing uh the 2600 game we also were getting paid a royalty on all ms pac-man products shipped <laughs> so we were getting a double royalty on that game and we did not want to screw it up oh no so if you notice uh we put uh four of us on it um and really viewed it was going to be uh, the best we could possibly do um, and focusing in on trying to fix some of the stuff uh, that was in the Pac-Man one, uh, which to be fair was a smaller ROM size um, and developed with uh, a lot less time on it. Um, you know, by the time we did the Ms. Pac-Man cartridge, we, we probably had two man years of engineering on it, which wow. uh, never would have happened uh, at uh atari because uh they were generally assigning one person and telling him he had to have it in time for christmas but i i think uh we uh were very much uh perfectionists in terms of trying to mimic the arcade game yeah and uh one of the you know best examples i give uh to people when we were working on it was uh on ms pac-man uh, when you tried simulating the joystick of the arcade, which was a four-position gated joystick, and you tried doing it with the eight-position Atari joystick uh, on the 2600. And the the first pass at it says, well, that's real, relatively simple. You've got upright, left, uh, down. Uh -huh. and then if you go on a diagonal, you just choose one or the other. Um, and that's not what you do when you play. Um, on a gated one, you obviously you're up, down, right, left. Yep. But on an ungated one, if you were going up, or up, left, or upright, I guess I'm drawing uh, right now, <laughs> um, whether you meant to go right or whether you meant to go up is critical to what you're doing in the maze. Absolutely critical. And right. if it yeah. doesn't do the right thing, you get upset. Now, the joystick is not the same. You can't gate it, so you can't cause it not to go to the diagonal. But you could look at it and say, how'd you get there? So if you were going right, and then you went up or right, we said, you now meant to go up. And so we kind of looked at how you got there. Uh, we, we spent a lot of time you know, on this very, very simple thing, but we had to get the joystick feeling good uh, so that 
as you moved around the maze, it really felt like the arcade one where we had, you know, a uh, different type of joystick, which would not work properly uh, if we just did it simply. Well, you, you never went from neutral to diagonal. Uh, it would always trip one switch or the other first. Uh, so if you're at neutral and you go, and the first thing we see is a right, we're going to start moving your right. If we then see right and up, we now said you, you are at right. So now you, you've moved it upwards and now you're going up. And it's, it's amazing that that just makes it feel correct. Centipede has one of the best title screens of any Atari, any, um, Atari VCS game. I know title screens sound, sound superfluous, but <laughs> at the time, they actually weren't. Like, if you wanted to, to get invested into the game itself, you know, that, that little piece of window dressing did a lot to make you feel as if you were playing the real arcade game. Um, Centipede is has an incredible title screen and i wanted to ask you where did that come from scroll down to the bottom if you can okay i'm scrolling down at the bottom so look at look at the last five people daryl uh, myers paul moody randall mclam marshall peck patty goodson so four of the five of them are graphic artists and so on the 2600 and the 7800 or all the games they would be designing graphics many times the graphics they designed did not fit but they were trying to do something quite elaborate um and show themselves off as graphic artists without worrying too much about the um limitations of the system um when we ran out of memory some of the graphics got cut or whatever uh but it was for them a area to uh, have some fun and to really, uh, uh, you know, kind of polish up the game. So the four of them uh, were often doing some fun title screens uh, and making the game really look interesting right from the start. It was usually the first thing cut or reduced, <laughs> uh, when the game did not fit. Uh, so uh, there were probably some very, very sexy uh title screens that did not make it now okay. when, when, I, when i mentioned those four artists uh the the other one uh was uh patty goodson who uh i believe was a juilliard musician uh really knew her stuff and um you know, we knew her brother back in college and convinced her to come in and try making some sounds out of the 2600 um which i think she attacked it with the same uh energy that we were attacking trying to reproduce video games uh where uh you know we we all know the tia chip can not do much in the 2600 no. making sounds um she did some amazing things to get things to sound great uh with limited ability got some good music and things and whatever so uh she was quite crucial to getting the sounds there and then as we did the 7800, uh, uh, continuing to improve things. Most of the 7800 games still use the TIA, right? You could, you could have a, you could have a pokey on in the cartridge, but only a couple games use the pokey. I know ball blazer did. Um, but a game like a desert Falcon, which I don't think has a, has a pokey on board. I mean, the you're, sound you're correct. Great. So. So um, with one or two exceptions, the 7800 cartridges were all using the uh, TIA also. Um, and um, the better sound came out of the fact that we were making larger cartridges 
and also had more uh, processing power to create sounds using the TIA. With dedicated artists and musicians on staff and an open shared working environment, GCC may have been one of the first real outsourced game studios ever created. This is especially true when it comes to sounds and music. The TIA chip on the Atari 2600 is not a dedicated sound chip. The television interface adapter has many functions, and only one of them is to play a limited range of sounds through two channels. Early Atari VCS games suffered from sound that really only hinted at what the games were trying to portray. While some of the sounds from these early years have become very special to Atari fans, Just as much as box art and playfield graphics, when the TIA was pushed to create the sounds of arcade games, it met its match. However, with professional musicians on staff at GCC pushing the limits of what the 2600 and later the 7800 could achieve with the TIA chip, things changed. Listen and watch now to a sample of the sounds and the graphics work of the GCC artistic staff. Processing uh, uh, power and uh, ROM size made a difference, or RAM size also. So, so the the point is, is that the TIA itself could emit a certain amount of tones. The amount of data that you could push to it in the in the right timing could actually make it sound better. Yes. 
okay, Mill- Millipede is in in the book games that never were. The games that never never were. Um, I don't want to ruin that for people. It's a it's a cool story. I think they should go get the book. Uh, and did you contribute to that book, or did were you interviewed for that book? Yes, as was the Atari engineer that worked on it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we we were both nice to each other. Uh, we were competitive at the time. Um, that I think we had certain advantages because we had the centipede code uh, to work from. And we had uh, more uh, people be able to be put on it. And, uh, you know, we're really trying to, and I think we started before they did. Uh, but um, they did a good job also. We thought ours was better, uh, but it came down to what we believe was a political decision that uh, we were not officially assigned the uh, Millipede title when we started on it. And I don't know whether it was a wrist slap or just to, um, um, help out uh, the morale at Atari at the time. Um, they chose the Atari one, which we think ours was slightly better, uh, but both were well done. Real Sports Tennis, maybe an odd one for me to pick out. I thought that was a great game. Yeah, so th- that one, um, we, we I, I still don't think gameplay came out as well as we wanted it to. Uh, we, we started off uh, just working on uh, try and design a good-looking net, a good-looking scoreboard, uh, having people be able to write things on the scoreboard, which was exciting. Um, and so we we built out the graphics, and it looked really good. Uh, we had trouble, as many people have, with sports-type games being played uh, on a relatively simple system. Right. And um, I think it, it came out well, but uh, not really well in terms of uh, having great gameplay. Um, but um, I, I think the graphics, at, when it first came out, were quite stunning. Yeah, they were quite stunning. I mean, Activision had tennis, which looked good as well, but this looked better in some ways, right? It was more colorful. Um, I think I think tennis had the, the shadow on the ball, which you guys had as well, right? So you could see yes. it. It was lobbying and stuff. Do you do you remember if that was an assignment or if you guys just picked it up and said, "Let's do a ten- tennis game"? I think it was an assignment. Okay. Um, that they were mentioning several they had and we said, "We'll we'll give tennis a try." Um, and the first thing we did was the scoreboard and the net, and we go, "Okay, I think we can do this," uh, but I'm not sure we knew exactly how to make great tennis gameplay. I think Galaxion was a really interesting one. Um, I did not work on it, but I remember uh, when uh, Mark Ackerman and Glenn Parker were playing with the TIA and uh, realized that they could cause uh, things to happen. And I forget exactly how they caused it, but um, if you look uh, at most 2600 games, the most characters you'll see on a line is six. Yep. because um, the uh, uh, each of the two uh, stamps, or whatever you want to call them, sprites, uh, can be tripled. Um, so you could get six on a line. Um, they figured out how to poke the hardware in a weird way, and I think got eight uh, uh, characters across, which were really important to making it feel like uh, the Galaxion game. Oh, yeah. That concludes part one of Lost Credit, The Secret Atari Heroes of GCC. Part two is coming soon. 
Next time, we pick up with the Atari 5200, the Atari 7800, and here's some final words from Doug McRae that put all of our efforts in the vertical blank into perspective. The song played during this episode was I Want to Feel by Tony Longworth. Into the vertical blank. Sorry.